It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KOMA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, friends. Welcome to Cadillac On Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And I suppose it doesn't matter the time of the year, the month, the year. It seems like uh, no matter where we are, living in this society these days, our focus needs to be on the pandemic that seems to be continually uh, in our midst. And certainly as we turn the calendar into the month of September, that is certainly the case. And as we uh, begin our program tonight, we're going to spend some time getting the latest from Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. In the second half of our program, we're going to catch up with Dr. Kevin Pieper, who's the Chief Medical Officer at Catholic Regional Medical Center. As you know, hospitals all across the Tri-Cities and all across the Northwest, if not the entire country, are being overwhelmed by COVID-19, primarily due to this rise in Delta variant of the virus. And so we're, we're going to get a perspective for you as we head into the Labor Day weekend. So with that, uh, we welcome to the program, as usual, Heather Hill uh, from the Benton Franklin Health District. And and Heather, I guess as I touched on, it really, I suppose, sadly doesn't matter the month or the year or whatever we are. We're still uh, up to our up to where we don't want to be with this vi- the virus and that it's still very serious and very contagious. Uh, you're right, Jim. It just keeps going on and on, and that, that is certainly frustrating from a public health perspective and, um, and, and the disease perspective. It's really challenging many of our systems, and, and particularly our acute care hospital system. But looking at the 14-day activity, you know, Benton County went down ever, ever so slightly in that case rate per 100,000. And Franklin County, however, went up a little bit. And I think it's important when you're looking at that data, again, we've always said don't just look at one day or several days. We're really looking for those trends because it does go up, down, up, down ever so slightly. What we're looking for is a sustained trend down, and that isn't something that we're seeing right now. Our um, testing out at the CBC West test site is still very active. They hit a record day of 1,200 tests, and unfortunately, the positivity rate out there is still very, very high at, at about 23%. So, 23% of all the tests they run out there are positive, and that that is extremely high. Um, hospitalization rates are high. So, uh, you know, again, it's it's not trending the right way at all. And obviously, we're heading into yet another holiday weekend. School is uh, starting, which is great. I mean, the kids are back in school, and, and that's a great thing if we can do it safely. Uh, we have events happening, if not fairs. Uh, we have uh, college sports, pro sports, high school sports uh, kicking up, where people can, at least, I guess, in, in the events of sports like football, they can be outdoors. But that being said, uh, the level of concern as we enter the Labor Day weekend, I know, happens every time during this time. But this, the way that uh, this Delta variant has really exploded, does that just add a level of additional concern? It really does, because... A year ago this time, we were certainly concerned, but Delta variant has added a whole new level of, of uh, infectiousness to our current situation. And our, our stores are open, people are out and about, our schools are open, 
activities are happening and then combine that with this extremely contagious uh, Delta variant. And we certainly have our concerns having just come off of the our local fair and knowing there was lots of potential for exposure out there. And then heading into the Walla Walla Fair and soon to be the Pendleton Fair. And we as individuals can really do a lot to keep each other safe and ourselves safe if we choose to gather in places like that. And as well as if we choose to gather with our friends. This is Labor Day weekend and it's, you know, historically kind of our last hurrah of the summer and we like to get together with friends. But there are ways to do it safely and we talk a lot about our mitigation strategies of masking, limiting gatherings and vaccinating. And, you know, the new catchphrase is any two will do. So vaccinate and mask or mask and, you know, limit your gatherings and and your social contacts. But unfortunately right now, if you were to get vaccinated today, again, it's not going to protect you for two weeks after the last vaccine in your series. So there, we just cannot dig ourselves out of the serious state we're in right now with vaccine alone. We have to do all of these mitigation strategies. And if you've chosen not to get vaccinated or unable to get vaccinated, then it really is extremely important that you wear those masks and you uh, practice social distancing meticulously. And certainly, as we touched on, uh, schools are starting to be back in session. And I was reading earlier today that already, I believe it's the Dayton School District, at least for the remainder of this week, at the middle and high school level, has gone back to all virtual due to COVID outbreaks there. And I know uh, we don't want that to happen any of our schools, and we want to be in person. But as you touched on, if it's not doing two out of the three, um, I, I think is is that the important thing that that we've been harping on these things. People know what they need to be doing and should be doing. But is it a case now where we're just at a point where, you know, please just do what you can? Absolutely. You know, we look a, a year ago to the last school year and nobody wanted kids to have to go home for school. That's just not what is in, in the best interest of our children. And we know that masks work. We know that kids are very, very good at using masks. Those are not the problem community members. Those kids, if you talk about the importance of wearing masks and the school is encouraging it, your friends are doing it, our adolescents, our children are not the problems. They're going to wear those masks. They're going to do the right thing because we had good evidence last year when the masks were being worn in schools. We just didn't see classroom transmissions. What has us concerned is we are heading back into the classrooms now, and we know that there are a lot of people who, who frankly don't believe the science behind masks and how well they work. And with this Delta variant, if we're not giving you know, our kids the message very loud and clear that for your health, the health of your classmates, and certainly the health of your teacher and the other staff at the schools, you've got to wear your masks and protect everybody as soon as you're in that school. If you would, before we go to our first break, can you give us a one-minute science lesson on what it is about the mask that is so effective? I keep hearing that the people that are anti-mask, that they, they try and 
shoot holes in any kind of science that's that's given to them, and whether it's you or an infectious disease physician or whoever it is, locally, regional, or nationally, they just don't buy it. But why don't you give us a one-minute explanation of what the masks do that are so helpful? Sure. Probably the most important thing that masks do is they catch all those droplets that come out of our nose and our mouth. Every time we talk, we cough, we sneeze, we laugh, there are microparticles coming out of our nose and our mouth, and that is where this virus lives. And with Delta virus, knowing it can be 1,000 times more viral particles if you're infected, that's just a huge amount of virus that can come out into the room and onto surfaces. So the most important thing it does is catch the organisms so that they can't get out into the room. And the other concern people have is, well, it, it makes it difficult to breathe. Well, certainly, anytime you put something over your mouth, you're going to feel uncomfortable. But there is absolutely no evidence that it drops your oxygen saturation level. In fact, it's been studied many, many times. You know, our, our physicians and care providers that work in the operating rooms, it's not uncommon for them to have vaccine or to have the um, face masks on for hours and hours and hours, 12, 15, 16 hours during a surgery, and their oxygenation levels do not drop. Um, it has been tested, it has been studied, and it is absolutely false information out there that says that masks don't work. Visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. She's with us for one more segment. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the remedies, vaccinations, vaccines, and how they're effective, and some other treatments for people if they test positive for COVID and when that should be used as well. Stay with us. More of our program right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. We shift our focus now to vaccinations and the latest statistics from the Washington Department of Health, age 12 and older fully vaccinated citizens in Washington State. The statewide number is 64%. In Benton County, it's 51%. Franklin County sits at 45%. Walla Walla County at 55%. So our area continues to lag behind the statewide averages. And and Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District, I guess, where are we? Are we seeing any kind of progress being made? I, I want to say it's still about the same numbers between the Benton Franklin averages and what the state's been running, but are, we, are those numbers starting to tick up a little bit? Um, a, a tiny, tiny bit, Jim. In Benton County, it's up by about 0.8%. In Franklin County, up by about 0.9%. And what we're hearing out there is that people who have really been very, very reluctant to get it in the past are now starting to come forward and, and accepting vaccination now. So that certainly is good news, but we really need more and more people to step up to the plate, get vaccinated to help you know protect themselves and protect the community. And are you hearing, what are the, what are the concerns again? I know we've touched on this a while, but maybe touch on some of the key ones again. I know now we have FDA approval, at least on Pfizer, so that addresses a concern. There were uh, infertility issues and and. Uh, questions about uh, women who become pregnant, concerns about that. Where are we on those real quickly? 
Well, you know, it is certainly recommended for women who are pregnant and um, all the medical organizations that are experts in the area of um, particularly obstetrics and gynecology, they have all said absolutely pregnant women should get vaccinated. Pregnant women are extremely vulnerable to a bad outcome. We know that when you're pregnant, your immune system changes and it puts you in a much more vulnerable state for a, a bad outcome should you catch COVID. And it's been well proven that it, it does not harm the baby and therefore you're at greater risk of having a bad outcome which could harm your baby if you catch COVID than you certainly would from the vaccine. And I know certainly the vast majority of hospitalized patients are unvaccinated, well over 90%. But what is the point about, I know we've heard of these people that are vaccinated, cases of people re-getting the, vac- or getting the virus again. Just address some of those concerns and the effectiveness of the vaccine and, and where that stands. Yeah, unfortunately, particularly with this Delta variant, we are seeing a number of breakthrough cases in people who were vaccinated. Again, we've reminded people time and time again We did not expect this vaccine to be 100% perfect, but what it is doing is causing people to um, not become as sick. If you are vaccinated, you are less likely to become very ill, and you are even more or less likely to not need hospitalization. And even further, we're just, it is an extremely rare situation where a person who is vaccinated gets COVID and actually dies from it. And in those cases, those individuals typically had significant underlying health conditions. However, when, um, you know, misinformation flies out there, that can unfortunately increase fear. And in the long run, that leads to more sickness and death. Finally, another, you know, we talk about vaccines. That's a good thing. That's supposed to be a good thing. Another treatment out there is this term monoclonal antibodies. And I know in various parts they're uh, becoming available in certain conditions. But give us a quick overview of, of when those are appropriate, who should be getting those, and where they have their most effectiveness. Sure. Um, we are seeing monoclonal antibodies used more and more, and they are becoming increasingly available even in our own community. It's still a little bit of a challenge for a person to get them, but um, what they do is they kind of work like antibodies in your own body, but they're pharmaceutically made, and they um, make it so that the virus can't get into the cells in your body and start replicating. So that's the good thing. And what the person that is most likely to need these are people who actually test positive or have a known exposure. And if you test positive for coronavirus and you have some high-risk situations that mean you could lead to a very bad outcome, you are a definite candidate for monoclonal antibody therapy. It's an infusion, or it can be done subcutaneously. And the important thing is, is you have to be referred to an infusion center or a provider that is doing this by your own provider. There um, is a website, it's a national website that you can go on and find out where these are located, kind of what infusion centers are using them, and that's at covid.infusioncenter.org. But the important thing is 
do not go to those infusion centers. You must have your doctor diagnose you with an active case of COVID. It needs to happen within the first three to four days of your symptom onset, and you have to be referred to that center that you are a candidate, you fit the criteria for the monoclonal antibody therapy. And I know in various places, I we can talk to Dr. Pieper from Catholic later in the program. I know there's work being done there to uh, figure out ways to, to make it available more readily here in the Tri-Cities. Um, but we have just a minute or two left before we uh, allow you to go. But the concerns that we have, we've touched on the availability of the monoclonal antibodies, the need to get vaccinated, um, we, the uh, school starting. It's just, it's just there's, they're all out there. But as you mentioned, I guess... Uh, if you aren't going to do all three, uh, two out of the three will do, and maybe repeat what those three are and if we can hopefully get to those. You know, the, the three are masking, you know, that social distancing and limiting your contacts with groups of people, and then vaccination. And, again, it's that any two will do, and it's a risk reduction concept where do whatever you can to reduce your risk at least a little, and that will help to improve our situation in our community. You know, we're heading into flu season. We know that that's going to be swirling around. And so not only looking ahead to getting booster vaccinations or for those that are immunocompromised, getting their third dose of COVID vaccine now, we also need to remember it's it's flu season coming. And um, it is okay to get your COVID vaccine and your flu shot together, just like it's okay for your kids to get their childhood vaccinations and a COVID vaccine together because we need to worry about the flu that is going to be coming to town very, very soon. And remind our listeners when the flu is most prevalent. I know the flu shot will be coming available, what, usually in the September, October time frame? Usually um, it has started to arrive by about now, but we want people to start getting vaccinated September, October, November, with the peak season for flu arriving midwinter to early spring, and you have to get vaccinated before flu gets here so that your immunity is at its best when flu does arrive. And we'll finish where we started, and I want to remind folks school is underway, and age 12 and under, there is not a vaccine available for them. The high school ages uh, 12 and older, there are vaccines available for them. Uh, but with school in session, Heather, maybe just a and a holiday weekend, and, and just a concluding comment uh, uh, where we stand and, and what you would like to see from your, your view in public health. Sure. I, I would really hope that people would think ahead to what we want for our children. We want our kids in school, and we have the control. We have the power to make sure that happens, but it, it, it really is down to wearing masks, social distancing, and protecting those kids. Otherwise, I hate to say it, we will see classrooms close again, and that is absolutely not the best um, for our children. And so we need to do what we can right now consistently so that we can keep our kids in school. And if you're of that high school age or at age 12 and older and and available, uh, go ahead and take advantage and get that vaccine. Get that vaccine on board. Um, You know, get started on it and make sure you finish your series. But we all have to do whatever possible to slow this surge down. 
Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Thanks so much, as always, for your wisdom and your and your perspective on where we stand. Uh, later in our program, we'll visit with Dr. Kevin Pieper, the Chief Medical Officer at Catholic Regional Medical Center. For more information on vaccine locations, testing locations, visit bfhd.wa.gov. Back with the second half of Catholic on Call right after this. Listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation, and we're now happy to welcome to our program Dr. Kevin Pieper, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Catholic Regional Medical Center. And as we have been documenting over the course of the last few weeks, the hospital systems, not only at Catholic, but throughout the Tri-Cities and around the Northwest, have been severely impacted by the COVID-19 variant primarily, but due to the cases that have really exploded, causing tremendous strain on the healthcare system all across the Northwest and all across the country. And, and Dr. Pieper, maybe just a, a quick question, first of all, for you is, how are things going at Catholic today? Yeah, thanks for asking, Jim. Uh, I think strained is a good word. Um, we're at capacity most of the time. Um, the last several days, we've had um, more ICU patients than we've had beds. We've had to expand in different areas uh, to be able to provide ICU-level care. Um, and uh, we've had patients waiting in the emergency department for beds for several hours as we try to move people through. Um, the numbers for COVID patients uh, have been higher than we've seen at any time during this uh, year-and-a-half-long pandemic, uh, and uh, we continue to see more and more. And I know these numbers, these are obviously throughout the pandemic when we give data and give case numbers, you know, it's easy to, I guess, get a little bit numb to the statistics. But but when you hear, and you just said, you normally have a, a, a particular sized physically of your intensive care unit, but you've had to even expand that service. And I know staffing has been a tremendous concern as well. Yeah. Um, you know, Just like any other industry, uh, we have open positions. Uh, we've had people out with COVID and uh, also out with the usual things that um, people take time off from work and vacations and things like that. Uh, and a good example of how strained we are this weekend, we had to have some of our anesthesia providers who would normally be providing uh, anesthesia for operating room cases and surgeries, uh, working alongside the ICU doctors managing ventilators uh, just because there were so many patients on ventilators at the time. Wow. So is it a case of all hands on deck on the clinical side and I guess clinical and otherwise? Yeah. And uh, it extends not just providers, but into nursing as well as we start to uh, look at where we have nurses outside of the clinical area that may have ICU training and and, um, start to ask that they come back and provide um, some support in the ICU as well. If you would, without getting too much over at least my head and, and uh, some of our, our more in, intelligent listeners, but when, when someone needs to be put on a ventilator in the ICU, I, I know early on, because it was primarily 
the older population that got hit really hard originally with the COVID virus. But now that population, I understand, is much younger. So if they need to be on ventilators, what does that present? And and being on a ventilator, what does that mean from a medical standpoint? Well, it it basically means that... um a, uh, a tube is put in a patient's uh, airway, uh, and they're put on a machine that uh, inflates and deflates their lungs for them uh, because they're unable to do so on their own. Um, and, you know, that part hasn't changed uh, during the pandemic, but the patients that we're seeing who need to be ventilated has. So with the Delta variant, we're seeing a lot younger uh, population have more severe disease. So, uh it wasn't as common last year to see a 20 or 30 year old need to be ventilated, but we're seeing a lot more of that now. And, and what kind of strain does that put on the team? I, I know one of the issues that was a huge thing and still is from an infection control standpoint is it was in short supply originally was this personal protective equipment. But but remind people that when, when this staff goes into a COVID room, it's not just walking in uh, to go take see how the patient's doing. They have some precautions to take before they even go in the room, right? Right, yeah. They spend several minutes um, putting on uh, gowns to protect themselves, uh, a different mask, uh, eye protection, um, gloves, uh, all kind of all of the things you can think of to protect themselves from not only getting infected themselves, but spreading it outside of that room. Um, and then to go into an ICU room where there's uh, multiple IV drips running with different medications. Uh, these patients often have to be rotated uh, from, you know, being on their back to on their belly or what we call a prone position. Um, and that requires several people. So um, it's not just one person going in and doing this. Sometimes it's a team of four or five having to go in and, and do that safely. And now it's not just happening in the ICU. It's if if the numbers are are unprecedented. I can remember a year ago, back in July, I think we we hit sixty on a few days, and I know it's even exceeded that. So that means it's more than just uh, the tenth floor, or the ninth floor. It, it it's pretty uh, pervasive around uh, on what you need to do. Yeah, it's it's significantly more than that, and it stayed there. Um, and. Um, it, it's a huge strain. And when you're talking about you have one single disease or process that's uh, using up, you know, 30% of your hospital beds, uh, that's, a, that's a very large number. And if you would, Dr. Pieper, explain for our listeners that strain that it puts, um, I guess, on, obviously you touched on, there's a, there's a finite number of beds, both physically and the number of staff you have. So if there are, and there are always cases that require ICU beyond covid um, and serious, you know, whether you're in the ICU or not, to require to be hospitalized. But uh, but I've heard stories um, in other parts of the uh, of the Northwest and the country where, you know, people are having to go be transferred hundreds of miles from their hometown just to find an available bed. Yeah, and and that's what we're seeing as well. I mean, we get calls from a lot of the smaller hospitals. Uh, around us uh, as we're sort of the the biggest hospital in the regional referral center uh, uh, until you get to Spokane. Um, We've been unable to take as many transfers as we had previously because of uh, all of those beds being taken up. And that circle of hospitals that would call us has gotten a lot larger. We're getting calls from a lot farther away as they're going down a list of dozens of hospitals just looking for a bed. 
Um, it's made it so we even have trouble taking care of our own patients. And uh, I'll give you an example of when we talk about scheduled surgeries and a patient who would need an ICU bed after surgery, we've had to postpone some of those cases. And, you know, we refer to them as elective cases in healthcare, but they're not really elective. They need to be done. Um, it's not uh, they're doing it just because they want something done, uh, like the cosmetic procedure, it's something they really need to have done. Um, and uh, it can't be put off for too long or it becomes an urgent case or a life-threatening situation. And is it something that would be important for the Tri-Cities listeners or at least those closest to the hospitals in the Tri-Cities to understand that then that means not only those patients from the smaller outlying areas can't come into places like Cadillac, but there are patients that normally would rely on Cadillac for those services that those patients have to go elsewhere. Yeah, and and we're seeing the same thing across the state uh, and across the country where uh, every health system is strained right now. There's um, very few ICU beds available in Washington, and I think I read recently that Idaho doesn't have any uh, available. And so... Um, that starts to put pressure on uh, other health systems that are probably in the same situation that we are. And if you would, I, I know one of the fortunate pieces for, uh, for Cadillac throughout the pandemic is being part of this larger system with Providence, no, whether it's uh, being able to source uh, the personal protective equipment. But, but you're a, a physician by training, and you oversee a, a, a large group of, of providers and clinical leaders uh, within the Cadillac system, but but if you would, maybe, I'm sure it would be comforting to know the level of collaboration and and when when you as clinicians uh, can share ideas and share best practices with whether it's somebody in Seattle or Spokane or or other parts of where we are in the Western United States. Has that been very helpful as far as the benefit for this community? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, daily calls with the rest of the Providence hospitals in the state uh, and in our region, uh, and then weekly calls with the entire Providence Health System, which is uh, 52 hospitals uh, in seven states. And so um, there's a lot of expertise uh, that can be shared there. There's a lot of power of of size there that uh, gives us leverage in uh, being able to obtain PPE, testing equipment, um, uh, and many of the other things that we need that are hard for other organizations to get. Uh, and just on that clinical expertise, you know, the hospital in Everett, Washington, is sort of ground zero for the United States uh, COVID pandemic. And their uh, lead infectious disease physician has become one of the national experts in researching newest treatments uh, and medications and running research studies and is right on the cutting edge and being able to uh, have him share that with us regularly is a lot of help. Dr. Kevin Pieper, the Chief Medical Officer at Cadillac, and you touched on some of these medical treatments that are being utilized, and that will segue into our next segment. I We touched on it with Heather Hill in the first part of our program, these monoclonal antibodies that seem to be uh, growing in importance and at least on the people's tops of people's minds and we'll get dr peeper's perspective on that and where uh, folks would and should and could access those uh, in the coming days weeks and months back with more of our program right after this 
You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610-KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. We have a few more topics to chat with Dr. Kevin Pieper, the Chief Medical Officer at Cadillac Regional Medical Center, before we let him go for the evening. And one of them is this treatment called monoclonal antibodies. And, and Dr. Pieper, without getting too, uh, too far uh, scientific on us, where is that used? Heather touched on it in the first half of the segment, but I understand there are certain types of patients that it is needed to be, it has its best effect with. Yeah, so um, it's an outpatient in treatment, so it's uh, usually given in the emergency department or in another clinic-type setting, and it's an a IV infusion or multiple injections uh, of a medication that uh, reduces the severity of COVID. So it's indicated for patients that don't need to be admitted to the hospital but are at high risk of their uh, infection uh, progressing to the point that they would have to get uh, admitted. So um, it's usually given uh, when uh, the patient gets a positive COVID result. Um, they're determined to have significant risk factors. Uh, and then given within 10 days of developing symptoms, uh, it significantly reduces their chance of having to be admitted to the hospital. And I know uh, I don't know that it's readily available yet within the Catholic system, but I know a lot of work is being done to to make that happen. What can you tell us about that? When we might expect that available within the Catholic system? We're hoping within the next week or so. Uh, you're right. We're doing a lot of work. Uh, it it takes uh, uh, some a fair amount of manpower to be able to. Uh, deliver the medication and then observe the patients. Uh, the patients are typically there for a couple of hours. Uh, so uh, it's something that requires nursing care. And as we talked about earlier, nurses are in short supply. So figuring out how to reallocate resources to be able to do this uh, is taking a lot of work. Um, so we think uh, next week we should be in a position to be able to give it uh, to the appropriate patients. So folks should probably check with their provider because I understand uh, a physician referral is required. Is that correct? That's correct. It's not something you can just walk in and receive. Again, it's only indicated for uh, a subset of patients. So um, not everyone would be a candidate. Before we let you go, I want to have a, a quick question for you on vaccinations, and certainly we've addressed the fact that in our area that the numbers continue to lag, and that's at the same time that the vast majority of hospitalized COVID patients are unvaccinated. As a physician, and if I was someone that you were counseling as your patient, and I was still resistant or hesitant, well, what would be your, your best case argument for me? Well, I think it's, uh, one, it's FDA approved now. So uh, we initially heard a lot of resistance to receiving the uh, vaccine because it was under emergency use authorization, that, and that's no longer the case. And it's been given to hundreds of millions of people. Uh, most medications that go through the FDA approval process uh, are only uh, trialed in a small group of patients. This would be... Uh, easily the largest FDA approval study if you looked at everyone that was um, receiving the vaccination under the EUA um, agreement. So um, it it has proven itself to be safe. 
um, and uh, it's proven itself to be effective. I think um, it seems to be a, an argument that I hear that, well, people who have the uh, have been vaccinated can still become infected with COVID. And while that's true, it's at a significantly less rate and significantly less severe of infection. So uh, we're fe- seeing very few vaccinated individuals have a severe enough COVID infection that they have to be admitted to the hospital. Uh, and uh, same thing for needed, needing uh, intensive care. Uh, that number starts to be even less uh, vaccinated patients that need ICU level care. If you could maybe take 30 seconds before we let you go just to give our listeners a, a perspective of, of how your colleagues within the hospital and throughout the Catholic system, and, and for that matter, all healthcare workers that are, have been at this a long time, uh, a, a pat on the back, and what would your message to the communities be? Yeah, I think if, thank your local healthcare worker. Uh, it's been a long 18 months, uh, and I think I touched on this the last time I was on the program, that uh, caregivers are tired, uh, they're burned out, um, they're suffering from compassion fatigue. Um, they've given everything they can, and um, a lot are at the breaking point. And that's why we've seen so many individuals leave healthcare across the country. They just can't do it anymore. So a, a simple thank you and a smile uh, would go a long way. Uh, uh, and if uh, you want to go a step beyond that, please get vaccinated. Uh, please listen to the other recommendations that are uh, coming out about wearing a mask, even if you are vaccinated, um, limiting your social gatherings. Um, we all have to do our part to try to limit this pandemic and get it back under control. Dr. Kevin Pieper, the Chief Medical Officer from Catholic Regional Medical Center, thanks so much for taking some of your time this evening. And thank you for listening. Uh, we'll talk again next week on the next edition of Catholic On Call. Good night.